So we commit this time to you, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So in this section of Isaiah, in chapters 13 through uh, 23, it's a section where Isaiah is addressing those nations that surround Israel and Judah. And one of the words that we see this burden spoken against as we saw against Babylon. And as last time, uh, last week we were in chapter 15, the burden against Moab. That burden means weighty. This is heavy. And these are prophecies that are spoken against those nations. Now, as I've already mentioned about Isaiah, the interesting thing is uh, Isaiah is that Isaiah, at times, there's a change of subject. There's uh, all of a sudden there's a prophecy given to where there was a near fulfillment. But then all of a sudden, Isaiah will be given prophecy about a future fulfillment. And we've seen that. We saw that with Babylon as in chapters 13 and 14, uh, the, the burden against Babylon was given, the proclamation against Babylon. And as we looked at that, some of those prophecies that were given were near fulfillments, but there are still yet future fulfillments concerning uh, Babylon. And of course, Babylon speaks more than just an empire that existed 2,600 years ago that dominated the world. But Babylon is spoken of throughout the scriptures. And we know that Babylon speaks of the worldly system, that Babylon speaks of that which is in rebellion against God, as we see in the book of Genesis in chapter 11, and also that which is false, and that which is demonic, and that which is worldly. And we see that that will all come to an end, as in the book of Revelation, chapters 17 and 18, that religious Babylon uh, is going to be destroyed. And it's interesting that we're going to talk a little bit about it here because there's an interesting prophecy given to us in Isaiah chapter 16 concerning uh, what's going to take place in that tribulation period. And, and we know that at the end uh, of the tribulation, also commercial Babylon is going to be destroyed as well. That's Revelation chapter 18. So as we look at these prophecies, sometimes they speak of a future fulfillment, even as we will see here in the chapter that we're going to study, chapter 16, continuing to speak about Moab. Now, one of the things that uh, to just remind you of that really has pressed my heart, I've read Isaiah, the book, several times as a Christian, but one of the things that have really stood out with me is the compassion and the heart that Isaiah really has. And as you go through the books of the prophet, and particularly as you go through the minor prophets, a lot of times there's thus saith the Lord, thus saith the Lord, thus saith the Lord. But what I see with Isaiah, and I also see it with Jeremiah, Jeremiah was called the weeping prophet, wasn't he? Because he wept for Jerusalem. He wept for Judah. He was, uh, after uh, Isaiah came on the scene, here would come Jeremiah. And Jeremiah was speaking to the leaders of Jerusalem while Daniel was in Babylon and Ezekiel was off in the captivity as well. But, but he's called the weeping prophet because he really wept for the nation. And um, we see that tender heart. But we also see it with Isaiah as well. Even as last week we saw in verse 5 that my heart will cry out for Moab. And, and we see the heart of the prophet that he's grieving here. He he's, has a sorrow of heart 
for uh, those that this, these prophecies and judgments are being spoken against. And that really shows me something. Matter of fact, what we see in Isaiah and what we see in Jeremiah, that oftentimes you don't see so much thus saith the Lord. You do see it. But what you see is God is speaking, you know, the personal pronoun I. And it just shows me that, that Isaiah and Jeremiah who wept for the people and wept for, you know, those who are going to be under the judgment, that they were so in tune with the Lord that the Lord's just speaking through them. I will, I will, I will. And that tender heart that you see. And that has really come, come out. And, and I want to press that point a little bit because we're going to continue to see that. But as we've been talking about the, the prophecy update, as we talked about Ezekiel 38 and 39, we talk about these prophecies here this week and then uh, next week as well. And as we continue through the book of Isaiah, I don't know about you, but for me, I can't wait till the Lord comes back. Amen. I can't wait till he establishes his kingdom and then everything is set right. I'm looking so forward to that time. And I'm looking forward to the rapture of the church. And I really believe that the Lord can come for us at any time. And I know that perhaps that's not a popular or even a discussion in much of the church today, but I see it all over the New Testament, the imminent return of Jesus Christ. And one of the things that I want to have before you guys always is that you, we be watching and we be waiting, but we also occupy, we be the faithful servants that is looking for the master's return. And I really believe that we live in unique times to where I wonder, are we the generation that's going to see the rapture of the church? We, we could be. I don't know because we don't know the day or the hour. But we see these things, you know, the signs that are before us as we discuss in Olivet Discourse and Luke's Gospel not long ago this fall when we're going through Luke and then over the last couple weeks. And, and it should wake us up, shouldn't it? And it should excite us as well. But I also, the other side of the spectrum is this. I also weep for those who are going to be left behind. And I weep for, you know, the judgment that's going to come on a Christ-rejected world. And I've talked to those who get excited about end-time prophecy. And it's like, oh, I can't wait till the Lord comes and blasts everybody, you know. And, and we should be weeping. We should be like Jeremiah. When he saw the destruction of Jerusalem, he said, summer's over and the harvest is in and we're not saved. And with a broken heart, he said that. And the time's going to come when that trumpet is going to blast and he's going to descend into the atmosphere and he's going to call us to himself in in a moment in a twinkling of an eye as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 and we shall be changed and we're going to be with him forever but there's going to be those who are going to be left and they're going to be saying summer's over the harvest is in and we're not saved and there will be time when that, that final seven-year period comes, there's going to be people that are going to get saved, a great multitude. As you read the book of Revelation, as we know that there's going to be 144,000 evangelists, 12,000 from the 12 tribes of Israel. We know there's the two witnesses in chapter 11 of the book of Revelation. We also know that there's an angel that's going to fly across the whole world that is going to proclaim in Revelation 14 the gospel. And many are going to get saved but they're going to go through great persecution and going through 
great trials and difficulties because it is the great tribulation that is going to take place in those final moments before the second coming of Jesus Christ when we come back with him. So we need to have a heart for people. I, I think that for me, there's an urgency to really minister to people and to get the gospel out. And, and the enemy's going to fight us and come against us and try to discourage us and weary us. But we are ones that to be, are to be used in the days in which we're living in. And what a privilege it is to be used in that way. So I hope that our hearts are stirred as we go through this. But let's pick up chapter 16 of Isaiah, that, uh, the, the proclamation, the burden against Moab that began in chapter 15, continues in chapter 16. Send the lamb of the ruler to the land from Shelah to the wilderness and to the mount of the daughters of Zion. For it shall be as a wandering bird thrown out of the nest, so shall the daughters of Moab at the Forbes of the Arnon. And as we begin to look at this, uh, Shelah, uh, or Shelah, was a word that means rock, as you look it up in the Hebrew. And it seems as though we see here that Here's this burden against Moab that Moab is going to flee. And uh, Moab would flee about 50 miles to the south to this place, Shelah, or that is Petra, which was in Eden. Now, we know that Moab, as we discussed, was on the east side of the Jordan River. If you stood there at Jerusalem or at Bethlehem and you looked across the Jordan Valley and saw the mountains there. Today it's called Jordan, but uh, that was called Moab. And Moab, uh, that the descendants coming from Lot and then just north of Moab would be the Ammonites. So you had the Ammonites, you had the Moabites and they were ones that the Moabites at times uh, had great hostility towards Judah and towards Israel. But at other times, there was this tender relationship with them. And we see that, of course, in the book of Ruth, as Ruth was a Moabitess that came over to Bethlehem with her mother-in-law. And that wonderful you know, story of, in the book of Ruth um, that speaks of uh, Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, that would take Ruth as his wife. And then, of course, she would be the great-grandmother of David, the greatest king that Israel ever had. And David, when he was being pursued, Pursued by um, Saul for all those years, he sent his family over to Moab for protection because, of course, Saul would go after his family and try to destroy, you know, Jesse and his, his brothers. His brothers, uh, we know, were in the army, but his parents would go over there and whoever else of his family to Moab and apparently had relationships over there. So Moab, you see in the scriptures, and, and again, Moab, being on the east side of the Jordan River, they would head south in that area, south of Moab. It was uh, Edom, and the Edomites were descendants of Esau from the book of Genesis. That was Jacob's brother. And here they are wandering. They're going to this place, wandering like a bird is what Isaiah uses that that imagery there. Now the Assyrians again, and I've mentioned this before, that when they came into an area, they were very cruel, known for their cruelty. They would torture people, skin people alive. Whole villages would get up when they heard the Assyrians were coming and they would just flee. And that's what Moab is doing as the Assyrians are making their way down on the east side of the Jordan River. And we know that those two and a half tribes 
that were on the east side of the Jordan River, the tribe of Gad, the tribe of Reuben, and half of the tribe of Manasseh, they were the first ones that were taken off into captivity by the Assyrians in about 732 B.C., and then it would be about 10 years later that you see the other tribes of, of Ephraim or the house of Israel would be taken off into captivity. So they're making their way like a flood. You remember that Isaiah was speaking uh, previously that, um, that Assyria is going to be like the great rivers there, uh, Euphrates and Tigris that overflows its banks and begins to make its way southward. And Moab uh, would be one that would flee from the the mighty Assyrians who, who would torture people and, and just destroy villages and put the corpse on poles and line the, the road with them. So if you came along and saw it, you would see that the Assyrians are here and this is what they're going to do to you as they conquer you. That's why Jonah wouldn't go to Nineveh, not because Jonah was so much afraid, but he didn't want to see salvation come to Nineveh. <coughs> So he flees the other direction. He's like, I don't want to go to these people. They are so cruel. So Jonah, you see his heart. His heart is different than what we see with Isaiah, who's cried out for Moab. But as we continue here in verse 3, take counsel, execute judgment, make your shadow like the night in the middle of the day, hide the outcast, do not betray him who escapes. So we see that as Moab is under this judgment, Isaiah says, Judah, show some compassion. Hide out uh, the outcasts of Moab. Don't betray him who escapes. And that needs to be our heart as we look at those who are unbelievers. I do pray that we have compassion for them. And, and I understand that we can be frustrated. We can get upset. We can get mad. And we see that the world's getting more crazy, it's getting darker, it's getting you know, more immoral, all that that we see around us, but that we would be ones that would have compassion for the unbelievers. What I pray for us as a church is that we would have a heart for the, the, the ones that are not saved, for the unbelievers in this community. And to reach them with the gospel of Jesus Christ would be our desire. Because what happened to Israel, we know, is they turned inwardly and they thought that salvation was only for them, that salvation could not come to the Gentiles. And that was a big bone of contention with them when the gospel began to spread in the early church. And they really had to come to grips that the church that was born and, and would begin to grow from Jerusalem to uh, Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth, that it would include not only Jewish believers, but Gentiles believers as one. And they would come together as one um, and um, having peace with God because of what Jesus Christ has done. So we need to have uh, uh, compassion for them. Last week I ended with, you remember that Jesus, as he was there, you know, made his way out of Galilee, and he would say, woe to Chorazin, and woe to Bethsaida, and woe to you, Capernaum. And I believe that he was saying that with tears in his eyes, and how hard it was for Peter, and for Andrew, and John, and James, who were from those areas, and the other disciples, to hear that. And he, here is Jesus saying, because you have rejected me, 
And, and he was in their midst, and he walked among them, and they saw the mighty works and the miracles, yet they did not believe. And Jesus saying, woe to you because of that. Judgment's going to come. But he was saying it with a broken heart. But as we continue in verse 4, let my outcast dwell with you, O Moab. Be a shelter to them from the face of the spoiler. For the uh, extortioner is at an end. Devastation ceases. The oppressors are consumed out of the land. In mercy, the throne will be established, and one will sit on it in truth. In the tabernacle of David, judging and seeking justice and hastening righteousness. And so an interesting prophecy is all of a sudden there's this change of focus. And, and you see that again often with Isaiah and, and verse 4 now. Now let my outcast dwell with you, O Moab. So in the previous verse, you guys, you know, show compassion, Judah, towards the outcast of Moab. Now it's flipped here. Let my outcast dwell with you, O Moab. Moab, you are to receive the outcast of Judah, and you are to protect them from this face of the spoiler. So as we see here, this prophecy concerning that Moab would flee to this rock, you know, to Shelah, that uh, scholars of the scripture believe that what this is talking about is a future fulfillment that will come when the uh, Jews in the tribulation period are going to flee the wrath of the Antichrist, the one who is called the face of the spoiler. And it's interesting, as you look up that word spoiler, that in the Hebrew, it literally means one who has power and one who destroys. And we know that the Antichrist, when he rises up in the last days, and the tribulation period begins with the rise of the Antichrist as he makes a peace treaty, which is a false peace treaty, a covenant, it says in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, confirms a covenant for one week. And we also know that he's the one, Revelation chapter 6, verse 2, is writing the first seal that is opened up. He's the writer riding on a white horse. He's conquering unto conquer. And he has a bow, but he doesn't have an arrow. So he's going to come on the scene. He's going to be a world leader. He's going to be a political leader. He's going to be an economic leader because everyone eventually is going to have to take his mark if you want to buy or sell according to Revelation chapter 13. And he's also going to come along as a religious leader. And as I mentioned to you, as we spoke about Babylon, that at the beginning, the first half of the tribulation period, what seems to uh, be told to us in Scripture and in Revelation chapter 17 is that the Antichrist, keep in mind that he is directly influenced by Satan himself. So what you see in the book of Revelation is this evil, this false trinity, if you would. You have Satan, uh, and then he is directly influencing uh, the Antichrist and uh, giving power to the Antichrist. And then also in chapter 13 of the book of Revelation, you have the false prophet who is pointing to the Antichrist and encouraging the world to worship him. So at the beginning of the tribulation period, you have this woman riding the beast. And the woman is this false worldwide church that will come on the scene. And I think that the, the very foundations of that are being established even today. What we see in the church, and the church, I mean the church at large, that is getting further away from the truth 
of the gospel, the church that is getting away from, um, you know, what the scriptures declare, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. And the acceptance of pluralism and, and coming together, and we're all one, and it doesn't matter what we believe. And so we're going to see more and more of that. What exactly is the false church going to look like? I don't know. But the nations of the world are going to accept it. And the Antichrist is going to use it for his benefit as the woman is riding the beast. So there's going to be this false church that will be on the scene. And here's the thing to keep in mind, folks, that when the Antichrist comes on the scene, he's going to be, as the scripture says in Daniel and also in the New Testament, that he's going to be one that speaks great things according to the world, a great orator. We are told that over and over and over again. You know, we've had those who are great statesmen. And, and I think I just saw somebody was telling me about a movie about Winston Churchill that comes out. And, and as he addressed, you know, the British government. And he was a great statesman, wasn't he? Or you think of somebody like Abraham Lincoln or even Ronald Reagan, who was called the great communicator. Well, we're going to see that the Antichrist is going to come along and speak even greater things than what they ever did. And it's going to enamor the people. They're going to turn to him. And he seems like he has the answers. Where you're also told that he's going to uh, be working great signs and lying wonders as well as, again, under the power of Satan. So the Antichrist coming on the scene is going to seem like light. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that even Satan can transform himself into an angel of light. He's not going to be dark. Okay? He, he's not going to be hideous. He's going to be like light, and the world's going to say, wow, we have never seen a leader like this before. And again, we see that the Antichrist is mentioned all throughout the scriptures over and over again, and the warning is given to us about how he will speak great things according to the world, but according to God, they're very blasphemous things. And he will rise up then, and he will destroy that false church, probably somewhere in the middle of the tribulation period. And then he will go in, as Second Thessalonians chapter 2 tells us, that he will go in, as uh, we read in verse 4, uh, that um, the one who uh, opposes and exalts himself, that's the Antichrist, above all that is called God, or that is worship, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he he is God. The scripture gives us indication that he will set up an image in the Holy of Holies as we do a book uh, study in the book of Daniel, just as uh, this, this shadow of, of uh, the Antichrist, Antiochus, Epiphanes, there that Syrian king set up this image in the Holy of Holies in the second temple period, 200 years before Jesus. The Antichrist is going to do the same thing, but this is going to seem like it's alive as we read the book of Revelation. And it's interesting, uh, the things that are being done today. Matter of fact, I think there was an article, I didn't get to read through it all, that Taco Bell was talking about, why don't we have robots that, that are there that are taking orders for people? Why should we, since the minimum wage, wage is, is growing and getting more expensive, we'll just put on robots. And they'll do it, and, and they'll take your order and all of this. 
So we see more of a movement, what that exactly is going to be, the image that's going to seem alive in the, the Holy of Holies there, as he will go into the temple of God, proclaim himself as God, desiring to be worshipped as God. And we just saw a couple of weeks ago, didn't we, in Isaiah chapter 14, what was the desire of Satan? As we saw him, that he would say there in Isaiah chapter 14, that, um, that I will sit upon the throne. I will exalt myself above God. And we know that that's always been a desire of Satan is for him to be worshipped as God. And that's going to continue through the Antichrist. So when he does that, we know as uh, the book of Revelation tells us, and let me read a little bit to you as in chapter 13, that so they will worship the dragon, that's speaking of Satan, who gave authority to the beast as the Antichrist. They worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast who's able to make war with him? And it was granted for him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given over every tribe, tongue, and nation. He's a world leader. And all who dwell on the earth will worship him. So that term, dwell on the earth, is speaking about non-believers. And when he goes into the temple and he proclaims himself as God, then he's going to turn and he's going to tell everybody, you need to make your allegiance with me. You need to take my mark. And if you don't, you cannot buy and sell. And anyone who doesn't, he heavily then begins to persecute them. It is at that time that Israel is going to say, no, we're not going to do that. You're not our Messiah. We're not going to worship an image. That's one thing that they've learned since 586 B.C. is we're not going to give ourselves over to, to idols. And so they would then, being heavily persecuted, are going to flee to Shelah here, to Petra, which is in Jordan. Now, Petra is an interesting place built by the Nabataeans. And they built the city into the rocks. And any of you that have seen the Indiana Jones movies, that the third one, I, I can't remember the title of it, uh, where Indiana Jones goes in, he goes through a narrow canyon, and there's a city built out of the, the rocks. That's Petra. That's where they filmed it. I've been to Petra. And there's only one way into the city, and that is through a very narrow canyon. And at some parts, the, the canyon goes from five to 700 feet high um, on both sides. And it gets so narrow at some points that barely two horses can get through. So it's very, very narrow, um, that canyon. And I've walked through that canyon. And all of a sudden, you come out into this open space. And there's this city that's built out of the rocks. And, and um, it's actually quite large. Matter of fact, this is largest as the city of Manhattan. National Geographic uh, did a, a, a long time ago an article on it about the rock city of Petra and had pictures and it was saying that it's about the size of Manhattan. So this huge city that was built out of the rocks and it seems as though what the scripture tells us is that Jews are going to flee to the rock city of Petra. Now Jordan and Israel right now have good relationships, as good as relationships that Israel has had with any of its neighbors. The king of Jordan, you know, uh, he's a Muslim leader, 
but he doesn't persecute the Christians. He allows the Christians to be able to worship. The Christians do have to be able to be careful in their evangelism. But, but Jesse, who's up with the high schoolers, he was in Jordan last year and, uh, or the year before, and uh, he was helping the refugees that were coming out of Iraq and out of Syria. And Jordan has been had a friendly uh, attitude towards Israel, so many Israelis go to Petra and they go visit it and, and they will go, um, thousands of them. Matter of fact, they just, Jordan just built a new four-lane highway going to Petra. And many tourists all around the world go there. Now what was interesting is that when I went there, it was only about four months after 9-11. And matter of fact, the group that I went with, we were the first group of, of Americans that went into Jordan after 9-11. Everybody was scared to travel at that time. Uh, we were in Israel, and, and those of you who have been with us to Israel, you know how crowded it can be. Well, when, when we went at that time after 9-11, nobody was traveling. Everybody was scared, especially scared to go to the Middle East. The Intifada was, um, you know, peaking, and, and there's a lot of tension with the West Bank. And so we went there, and we would go to places that were completely empty. We go to Caesarea, completely empty. We go up to, you know, uh, Caesarea Philippi, completely empty. Jerusalem was empty of tourists. It was very interesting to go at that time. But also, we went into Jordan to Petra, who had received thousands of tourists every single day. They had major hotels. When we were there, we were the only group, 20 of us, that were there that was seen Petra on that day. And it is interesting that there's been, I don't know, there's been reports or you can read it on the internet um, that it says that there have been Christian businessmen that believe this prophecy and they have put supplies in Petra for when this happens. Now, I don't know if that's true. Personally, I think that if they did put supplies there, there's Bedouins that are there. The Bedouins that are outside of Jerusalem, they live in tents. They live pretty much like Abraham did 4,000 years ago. And they're, you know, live in tents. They're herding their sheep and their goats. The only thing different is they have antennas sticking out of their tents, you know, and a wire coming to it where they can, you know, pick up CNN news and all of that. But they pretty much just live off the land. They're in Israel, in Jordan, in Saudi Arabia, in Egypt. And when we were there, the unfortunate thing there is you're trying to, to look at all these things. And the Bedouins were there, and they were just all over us, begging us uh, for money, for, for you know, anything that we would give to them. And that was the only downside because we were the only group that was there. Usually they had thousands of people to pick from. But I think if there was any supplies there, the Bedouins would get to them somehow and empty it out. So it seems like what's going to happen is, according to Revelation chapter 12, and Revelation chapter 12 tells us, but the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and a half time from the presence of the serpent. And what we read in Revelation chapter 12, again, this is taking place in the middle of the tribulation period, is that there's going to be the Jews that are going to flee whoever can 
to, to Petra, and we know that here that the, the enemy Satan is going to go after um, the woman who gave birth to the male child. That is Israel who gave birth to uh, the Messiah, and he's going to try to overtake them. It goes on and says that the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. Uh, by the way, verse 14 of Revelation chapter 12 when it talks about that the woman was given two wings of a great eagle, there are those who will come along and they will say, see, America is mentioned in end-time prophecy because our national you know, symbol is what? The eagle. So speaking that you know, Israel is going to be a great airlift by the Americans and all this. Listen, remember what I told you about Bible interpretation. And there was a lot of hype about Revelation chapter 12, you know, that was going to be fulfilled, the great sign in heaven. And there are those also who come along and say, well, this is where America is mentioned uh, as, you know, it begins the chapter by the stars and the moons uh, that is mentioned. And we're, you know, the only nation that's been to the moon. So it's speaking about America. And then the, they, you know, uh, lifted on the wings of an eagle. That's America. That's bad interpretation, all right? The best thing you can do is let the scriptures interpret scripture. And remember, when the, when the text gives a good sense, give no other sense, lest you come up with nonsense. And that's what we see a lot that is given there. And you can go to the book of Exodus chapter, um, in Exodus 19, verse 4, that speaks about when they came out of Egypt, that once again, that term is used, that they were there um, as they were on the wings of a great eagle speaking about the exodus. So that's what I believe is speaking about here, this exodus of the Jews coming out of, uh, of Israel as the Antichrist is going to heavily persecute them. But I want to bring it home a little bit closer to us because you might be here thinking, okay, you just threw a lot at us. The Jews are going to go through this persecution. They're going to flee to the rock city of Petra where God is going to nourish them. You know how I think that they're going to be supplied? I think, and it's just a thought, all right, that how did God, as they were carried on the wings of an eagle out in their exodus, how did he supply them? With manna and with water from the rock. And I think that perhaps, could it be that that's the same way that he's going to be able to be able to provide for them as they're going to be hidden away there and kept safe in that place in the rock city of Petra? Don't know for sure. But I do know this, that maybe some of you that you feel like, yeah, I've been a flood that's coming after me. And there's been difficulties and I seem like the enemy's been pursuing me. And I want you to know that the Lord, he is your refuge. And he is there with you. And he promises he'll never leave us or forsake us. And I was looking at a couple of the Psalms that, again, just speak to my heart. And David in Psalm 69, in book number two, the book of Psalms, is so wonderful as the Lord, you know, uh, used David in such a mighty way as David is uh, given this urgent plea for help in trouble and save me, O God, from the waters that have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire and where there is no standing. I have come into deep waters where the floods overflow me. I'm weary with my crying. My throat is dry. My eyes fail while I wait 
uh, for my God. And in, in Psalm 61, here's David again in a very difficult time in the wilderness saying, Hear my cry, O God, and attend to my prayer. And from the end of the earth I will cry to you when my heart is overwhelmed and lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Listen, if you feel like you're in the mire, if you feel like you're being flooded with troubles and the enemy is pursuing you, go to the rock. And to the, your refuge, Jesus Christ. And you can cry out to him. And let him be your refuge. He promises he'll never leave you or forsake you. You know what it can feel like sometimes? I don't know if you've ever felt this way. But I know I have a few times in my life. Do you remember when David, dealing with Uriah, the, the husband of Bathsheba. And he gave out that, you know, command to Joab that when you go into the heat of the battle, put Uriah up there, and then everybody retreat, and then Uriah would be left there, and he would end up being killed. And David was guilty of murder. Our God is not like that. Our God is not like David, who came up with that plan. And sometimes I felt like, you know, Lord, everybody's retreating and I'm here by myself and, you know, the enemy's there ready to roast me and to get rid of me and do me in. He promises he'll never leave you or forsake you. And he's not going to retreat from you. But he's going to be there to be your refuge and your strength. Turn to him, call out to him because he hears your prayer. So here's this prophecy about the Jews fleeing to the rock city of Petra and and let's continue on as we want to finish at least the chapter here. In verse 6, we have heard the pride of Moab. He is very proud of his haughtiness and his pride and his wrath. But his lie shall not be so. Therefore Moab shall wail for Moab. Everyone shall wail for the foundations of Kerr and Harisheth. You shall mourn, surely they are stricken. For the fields of Heshbon languish, and the vine of Shibma, and the lords of the nation have broken down its choice plants, which have reached to Jazer, and wandered through the wilderness. Her branches are stretched out, they are gone over the sea. Therefore I will bewail the vine of Shibma with the weeping of Jazer. I will drench you with my tears, O Heshbon and Eliah. And for battle cries have fallen over your sum of fruits and your harvest. Gladness is taken away and joy from the plentiful field. In the vineyards there will be no singing, nor will there be shouting, nor treaders will tread out wine in the presses. I've made their shouting cease. Therefore my heart shall be resound like a harp for Moab and my inner being for Ker Harris. So here we see that Isaiah showing again this heart for Moab that there's going to be no gladness, there's going to be no joy, no fear feasting at harvest, no singing. It's all taken away. And we see that what is mentioned here is that God is going to deal with the pride of Moab. Now, here's the interesting thing. That pride isn't just for the one who's mighty. You see, Moab was a little, little nation and really had nothing to boast about. They weren't like the powerful Assyrians or the Babylonians, but yet they were prideful. And it tells me something that we don't have to be, you know, mighty or so popular or so famous or powerful or have prestige or wealth and all that to be prideful. Any of us can be prideful. Moab was prideful. And God says, I'm going to deal with your pride. And we have seen, even as we saw in chapter 14, and we see throughout the scriptures, how terrible a sin pride is. 
when we become prideful, and we're going to see that, that God's going to declare through Isaiah that I will not share my glory with anyone, with any man or any woman. And he will deal with this in pride, even as Proverbs says that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before fall, right? So Proverbs talks a lot about the foolishness of pride and how God will deal with it. And he will deal with our pride by trying to bring you to himself and convict you to will you will humble yourself and say, Lord, I'm being prideful. And that's something that we should do constantly and continually every day. Lord, I don't want to be prideful. I don't want to boast. Because we can become prideful. And I'll tell you that one of the things that I've learned that some people think to be humble is a real weakness. Uh, to have the characteristics of meekness. Meekness uh, means uh, strength under control. And, and it takes on humility. Listen, it takes real strength for us to be humble. To walk in humility, but it pleases God. And we need God's help because just because we become a Christian doesn't mean all of a sudden, you know, these tendency, fleshly tendencies go away. The pride can still be there. And I know for me that I have to always have a heart check. Lord, am I being prideful? Am I boasting? When I understand that I'm not to be prideful and I need to be careful of that. And it takes real Strength, I think, for any man or any woman to humble themselves and say, Lord, forgive me, for I've been prideful. Because if we don't do that, then God will deal it in another way, and he'll deal with it justly, and he will deal with us in pride. And he's dealing with Moab here in the pride that they are showing. But again, Isaiah is showing this, this sad heart from Moab. And I'm reminded of Daniel chapter 4 in that story of Nebuchadnezzar's testimony that Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. And he sees this dream of a large tree and went up to the heavens and could see and, you know, the whole earth and all of this. And, and, and he didn't know what that dream meant. So Daniel comes and interprets the dream. And when Daniel interpreted the dream, he said, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, I wish this wasn't true. I wish that this was for your enemies and not for you. And he told him the interpretation, The tree is you, Nebuchadnezzar, and you're going to get cut down. That tree and that vision that, that Nebuchadnezzar dreamed he had, the tree was cut down. And you're going to be cut down, and you're going to go insane for seven years. And Daniel said, Nebuchadnezzar, repent, turn to the Lord. And maybe this will be avoided. But Nebuchadnezzar didn't. In that very hour, he went insane for seven years. But we know that Daniel says that he had sorrow in his heart for Nebuchadnezzar. And you know what I think that Daniel did during those seven years? I think he protected Nebuchadnezzar. He didn't take advantage of it. He was Nebuchadnezzar's right-hand man. He didn't say, hey, Nebuchadnezzar, while you're going insane, you want to sign this proclamation that I'm the leader now and we're all going to leave Babylon and, and all of this. He didn't do that. He protected Nebuchadnezzar as he went insane, was clawing at the ground, and, and he came out of that, and God humbled him, and he gives his testimony, and I believe very well it could be that we're going to see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven. It seems like that that brokenness really brought him to the Lord. So he's going to bring Moab, and he's going to break them because of their pride. And it shall come to pass when it's seen that Moab is weary on the high place. They will come to his sanctuary to pray, but he will not prevail. This is the word which the Lord has spoken concerning Moab since that time. But now the Lord has spoken, saying, Within three years, as the years of a hired man, the glory of Moab will be despised 
with all that great multitude and the remnant will be very small and feeble. So um, judgment is going to come within three years. The judgment would come. But he also mentions here that their false gods will not help them. And we see that. And here's the thing. Anything that is false, listen, will not help you. Any kind of false and worldly philosophy and ideas and how to live and fads and fashions and all of this, that which is false is not going to help you. But that which is true, the Lord himself and the word of God is going to help you. So I pray you stay close to him and that you would heed him. And again, we don't do Bible study and look at these things and then go home and we forget about what the Bible says to us. We want to apply it in our lives. We want to believe it, not make excuses for it, and not turn to that which is false because that which is false is not going to help you in your hour of need. It's the Lord that's going to help you and the Word of God. And that's why we need to continue in the things of the Lord and the Word of the Lord in our own lives. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for this chapter and Lord, I pray that you would help us to, to keep close to you. And um, even as we go through difficulties and trials, that you are our refuge. And when it seems like it's over flooding us and uh, overflowing over us, that, Lord, we know that you're the rock that which we can stand on and cry out to you when our hearts are overwhelmed. And Lord, so I pray for anyone who's here tonight that maybe you're just going through a difficult season or hardship or whatever it may be, that you would turn to him because he promises he'll never leave you or forsake you. He has not retreated. He's not left you to be what seems like just destroyed by the enemy. He is your refuge. He's everything that you need. And Father, I thank you for to be able to come here and study your word. And we know that these things will come to pass. And that we would be a people that would have compassion for the lost. And knowing that the judgment is real and that you will deal with sin and Christ's coming is imminent. And but also judgment on a Christ-rejected world. So it should cause us to have an urgency in our hearts to share with those around us in our lives that don't know you, to have a heart for them, even though they may be hard to deal with, even though they may get under our skin, that you've placed us where we are for such a time as this to be light and truth to others. Lord, teach us to love. Because I know for me, I'll speak for myself, that it doesn't just come naturally, that it has to be a work that that you have to do, Lord. Continue to do that in us and through us. Even as Jesus said, they will know you're my disciples for your love for one another. And I pray that you bless everyone here. And if there is anyone here that hasn't responded to the gospel, that they would come up and hear the gospel, that Jesus loves you and died for you and gave his life for you and loves you, wants to save you and forgive you. And he is your salvation. There's none other to come up afterwards and just to pray with me and to be able to talk with me because today is the day of salvation. Take us all home safely, Lord. 
And Lord, I know that you want to use this church in such a powerful way in this year. And Lord, we just wait on you. We look to you. We don't come in pride. We don't come in arrogance. We come, Lord, humbling ourselves before you, desiring to please you in every way. So Lord, take us all home safely now. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you please stand?